Place, the podcast where Gramps and his guests talk about everything cannabis, cannabis law reform, and anything else that might need a little changing here in the good old USA. Working through advocacy to end the prohibition of plants. This evening we are lucky enough to have Dr. Amanda Ryman, PhD. Currently, she's the VP of Community Development at Flocana. Chief Executive Officer and Founder at Personal Plants, which she launched this week, and a board member at Mendocino County Fire Safe Council. After receiving her PhD from UC Berkeley, Dr. Ryman became the Director of Research and Patient Services at Berkeley Patients Group, one of the oldest dispensaries in the country, and the manager of the Marijuana Law and Policy Division for the national nonprofit Drug Policy Alliance. An internationally recognized cannabis expert and public health researcher, she taught courses on substance abuse treatment and drug policy at UC Berkeley. Amanda was the first chairwoman of the Berkeley Medical Cannabis Commission and sat on the Oakland Cannabis Regulatory Commission. Hello, Amanda, and thank you for joining me here on Grant's Place. Thank you so much for having me. It is a pleasure to be here. Please tell us a little more about your current role in the cannabis space. Well, I'm a bit of a jack of all trades in the cannabis space. Uh, I've been working in the cannabis world for over 20 years. My background is in public health research, but I've worked in pretty much every facet of the cannabis space. I've worked for NGOs and nonprofits, working on the social justice and reform areas of cannabis. I've worked in academia at universities doing research and teaching college students about plant medicines and the drug war. And most recently, I've been working for a private company, a cannabis company up here in Northern California in a rural area. And I've been working on how economic development can stem from regulated cannabis and how that can impact the economies of rural areas. Uh, In just a few months, I'm going to be moving to Colorado And uh, that's where I'll be growing my own business, which is called Personal Plants. And the idea behind Personal Plants is kind of like the Food Network, but for plant medicines, where we empower people to grow and process their own plant medicines at home. Yes, I've I've checked out your website. It's it's quite the website. Thank you. Uh, L.com did a feature on the top influential women of cannabis back in 2014, which included you and how you're not just the average cannabis activist. What was it that they called you in the article, and how did it make you feel? Well, they called me the brain, and it made me very excited. Um, You know, my role and my contribution to cannabis is science, and that's how I got into this, was wanting to study what was happening with early medical cannabis dispensaries and their role in community health. So I do feel that I'm fulfilling my role uh, as a scientist when I get recognized like that, and it's definitely a big part of the work that I continue to do. Being someone who has followed as well as helped to further the science of cannabis medicine, would you say that the anecdotal evidence we have today in regard to cannabis is not only uh, basically the same, but uh, it's the same anecdotal evidence that pharmaceutical companies have when they apply for clinical trials for a product that they have in development? Well, I would say yes and no. 
You know, there's definitely a role for anecdotal evidence in pre-preclinical trials where doctors are trying to get a better sense of how something might be functioning in a patient's life in wellness. Um, and then the next step is preclinical trials, which do have some control associated with them. They're not the same as clinical trials, um, but it's kind of the beginning of that path. In order to even begin that path, they have to be able to show that there's one chemical component in that medicine that is responsible for one chemical action in the body. And that's really the FDA model. One chemical, one reaction, everything else is a side effect. So where cannabis ends up getting into trouble is a couple places. One, the federal government doesn't let it get as far as preclinical trials, right? So the federal government is saying, we're not going to fund anything that's looking at the use of the raw plant for a medicinal benefit. That just doesn't happen. That doesn't exist. Until very, very recently, the federal government completely controlled the supply of cannabis for research. And it's funny because people ask me, how are they doing all this research on psychedelic plants? Like, how are they, Johns Hopkins and Harvard and all these places are getting federal funding to do research on the medical benefits of psychedelic plants. How is that possible when we've seen cannabis have such a hard, hard time um, doing having research done with it? And the reason is that even though all of those plants are Schedule One, they're all in the top category of the Controlled Substances Act, most restrictive, only cannabis had the rule that in order to do research on it, you had to get your cannabis from the federal government. So if I wanted to do research on psilocybin or MDMA, I could commission a private chemist to create that product for me, and I could get federal funds to do the research. Because cannabis was held to a different standard, anytime I would put in a, a grant proposal to do research on the benefits of cannabis, the government controlled the whole supply. So if they didn't say yes, you weren't doing the research. And so my early research really tried to skirt around that by not actually giving cannabis to the people that I was studying, but rather going into venues like dispensaries where there were a lot of people using cannabis and then asking them about their experiences. So that's one reason, right, that we haven't seen these same preclinical trials on the raw plant that we see uh, in pharmaceuticals. The other reason is that what I mentioned before, the one chemical, one reaction model. Plants don't work that way for the most part, and cannabis certainly doesn't work that way. It's not just one chemical. It's hundreds of chemicals combined with terpenes and flavonoids and all kinds of things working in concert to promote healing. And unfortunately, our very narrow FDA pathway is not set up to evaluate plant medicines. So that's why when you buy an herbal tincture from the store, you see a little on the label, this has not been evaluated by the FDA because it really can't be. So until we develop a system for better identifying the values of plant medicines, it's never going to get to the point where it can get to these same trials as we see for pharmaceuticals. Sure. Do you agree that that is the largest obstacle in the cannabis uh, space in terms of getting to the trial phase is the federal prohibition of cannabis? I think that it's that coupled with still the disbelief amongst many in the medical community that it's actually medicine. <laughs> so, you know, if we had a lot of doctors really pushing 
for this research to happen and really pushing for these drug schedules to change, you would see more movement. And we're starting to get there. We have Doctors for Cannabis Regulation, which is a great group, but it's not being mainstreamed into medical schools. It's still looked at as a fringe practice. And so it's the prohibition of cannabis plus the lack of acceptance of cannabis as medicine in the medical field that makes it really, really difficult to expand this research and to really have it be a normalized part of federal funding. You've done work in regard to using cannabis in lieu of opiates for pain. What seems to be a very promising aspect of cannabis is many. Do you think we have enough evidence to move forward with making cannabis a primary go-to for treatment of chronic pain? A hundred percent, yes. A hundred percent. I don't believe in saying over a hundred percent because that doesn't exist. So I'll just say a hundred percent, yes. Yeah. Uh, I, we I know and yeah. So. <laughs> we, you know, there's, there's actually it's interesting because we do have quite a bit of research on cannabis at the cellular level, you know, at the microorganism level, at the computer-generated model level. Um, and there are a couple of things that we really know that cannabis works for. And probably the one that's the top of the list is pain. So I think we know that. And when you look at potential harms of long-term prescription pain management, then it becomes even more apparent that cannabis should be a first line of defense. I mean, the number of people that accidentally overdose on pain medicine and if those folks had been offered cannabis first, and let's say it even worked for half of them, that would be half the number of those people that would have been able to avoid hazardous pain medication use. And when you're talking about chronic pain, you're talking about a pain that needs to be treated forever. This isn't something where you take something for a week and you're better, you broke your arm, it heals. Please. Right? I have chronic pain. You know, I've had chronic pain for 20 years. And I refused at 23 to start on a regime of prescription pain meds because I wanted, was concerned about what it would do to my liver at age 45, which is how old I am now. So I started on cannabis and it managed the pain. It kept me off of the pharmaceutical drugs. And I was very fortunate that I lived in the Bay Area of California where I had doctors that were willing to talk to me about it. I had access at a dispensary. I had people who could help me figure it out. And so absolutely 100%, it should be, and it doesn't have to be smoke and pot. That's the other thing is that folks are like, oh, I'm not gonna take my opiates. So you want me to smoke joints? It's like, um, no, how about you put some of this liquid under your tongue? That's, that's one of the things that, 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 that I, I deal with all the time with people is, is, you know, it's not necessarily smoking. Now, there are some things that smoking works for. Like, for instance, um, you know, I gave it up. I smoked for 26 years. I was a daily user. And when my current wife and I got married, I don't know how much you know about my story and how I got started in this whole endeavor. But uh, I gave it up when we got married. We were high school sweethearts many, many moons ago. We went our separate ways after high school. We got back together 23 years later. I love and, that story. Uh, needless to say, try to make a long story short, she had spent her life working toward a retirement in the district attorney's office. She didn't ask me to. I just said, you know, my brain said, this is not going to be good for her if I get caught with a bag of weed in my truck, you know. 
the DA that she works for is going to say, uh, <clears throat> you got to go or something. And then I screwed her out of her retirement. So I gave it up. And then a few years later, um, my youngest son passed away from epilepsy and, and we had talked about using cannabis, but he was adamant that he would, uh, not break the law. And of course we didn't have legal access here and, uh, medications had the exact opposite effect for him. Uh, he started out very, very intermittent seizures, no regularity. Uh, always the same severity of grand mal seizure, but no regularity whatsoever. He might go three months, he might go three weeks, he might go nine months in between. And there was no no warnings, no anything. When he got met on medication, they became like clockwork. And then the frequency, every time they changed the medication, they became more and more frequent and more and more severe to the point that they eventually took his life. <clears throat> and I blame the medication for it. But as a father, he was 23 years old when he passed away, so I can't do anything but have, you know, the, the, the utmost respect for him as a human being and as a man that uh, he wanted to respect the law. Now it's my duty to change the law because I started to, I mean, I really didn't know, honestly, when we talked about it, if it would help him or not. But we'd heard stories, you know, of people in California, people out in Colorado, and uh, people had moved from Texas to Colorado, and uh, just the long and the short of it was <clears throat> him not wanting to try it. We didn't really dig any deeper to find any real evidence, you know. But I have since he passed away, and I'm appalled at the things I've learned from the get-go of Prohibition. I, and, and I probably need to stop there because this interview will go <laughs> But um, <clears throat> I have, uh, throughout my stopping using cannabis, I later was diagnosed with MGUS. I don't know if you know what that is. It's no. a mul multiple gammopathy of undetermined significance. Basically, my bone marrow is making rogue protein cells, which is uh, kind of like the precursor to multiple myeloma. Or, or a blood cancer. Very little chance it'll ever turn into that, but it, it does cause neuropathy. And I, I found in all my research a study done out in UCLA in the, the late 90s that said that smoking cannabis was actually the best way for neuropathic pain. So I looked at my wife and I said, she's retired from that office now, you know. And I said, what do you think? And she said, it's up to you. So I gave it a whirl and it's not perfect, but you know what? Nothing else I've ever tried is either. And it's not that terrible, terrible monster gabapentin, you know, that I took for a while. And I finally told them, no, I don't want to take this anymore, you know, but it does help. It takes the edge off most certainly. And, you know, the only problem is it's not legal here. Yeah. You know, yeah. but, uh, and that should be, you should be able to have that as your first option. So when you go to the doctor and you have neuropathy, because I also have neuropathy, and it's very hard to treat. It is really tough. It's not an Advil pain. You know, it's, it's deep and it's not coming from something external. It's coming from your own body. And so it's very, very hard to treat. And it should be the first thing that the doctor offers or talks to a patient about when they're looking at treating long-term neuropathy. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's just, 
uh, you know, and my doctor, my GP, she knows full well what I do, and she supports it 100 percent because I'm That's not great. taking I'm not taking anything else for it. Yeah, and you she know. sees other patients that are on multiple multiple pain medications to treat the same thing, and then she ends up having to treat the side effects of those medications, and that's a whole other set of medications. I mean, you'd almost think that the pharmaceutical company wants it that way so they can make a lot of money. Hmm. And it sure seems that way, doesn't sure it? Sure seems that anyway. way. <laughs> Some people don't like to call cannabis a drug, and I have been one of those myself. But you've stated in the past that cannabis is a quote-unquote smart drug. Tell us why. So the reason I call it a smart drug is really in comparison to what we look at when we, we look at other, other types of narcotics or really pharmaceutical drugs, which is that when you introduce uh, opiate, for example, into the system or, or, or other types of pharmaceutical drugs, there really isn't any kind of differentiation about how it impacts the body. It pretty much blankets the body with its effect. And, you know, it targets and hits its target, but it hits everything else. So like, you know, going and basically bombing a city and just blowing it up, just dropping the bomb and blowing up the whole thing. Yeah, you're going to hit your target, but you're going to destroy a lot of other things as well. Cannabis is different, and this relates to our endocannabinoid systems, where cannabis can go in and survey the area and look and see where dysregulation is happening and then target that specific area. So like a smart bomb can go in and just take out the target without everything around it. Cannabis does the same thing. And they've seen evidence of this in the lab uh, with breast cancer. And they've seen with breast cancer cells, again, these are cells in a Petri dish because God forbid we study the people with the actual plant, but they do see that it stopped the spread of uh, of the, the metastasizing of cancer cells in breast cancer by turning off the signaling that signals the uh, metastasizing and that it was just impacting the cancer cells. It wasn't impacting the other healthy cells. And so that's why it's so interesting, you know, because we do have an endocannabinoid system, how phytocannabinoids in the plant are absolutely receiving the same signals as our bodies are giving our endocannabinoids. So uh, that would be obviously the significance of the discovery of the endocannabinoid system. In oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I mean, and so this is what's so interesting because the endocannabinoid system is really on par with the nervous system in terms of its importance in regulating our bodies and keeping us in balance. And yet we didn't even discover we had one until the 90s, as you say. And of course, that was a lot more shocking, Chris, when I used to give these kinds of stats in the 90s or in the two th early 2000s. And I would say, we didn't discover it till the 90s. But now that's like 30 years ago already. <laughs> so it's not, it's not as impactful. But still, it's like figuring out we had a nervous system in the 1990s, right? Mm -hmm. It was a really, really big deal. And it really explained a lot of why cannabis has been used by humankind for thousands and thousands of years. We literally have systems in our body that produce the same chemicals that are found in the plant. And it explains so much about why certain diseases may exist, why they act a certain way. There's been some really interesting research done on endocannabinoid deficiency syndrome by Dr. Ethan Russo. And his hypothesis is that certain diseases of dysregulation in the body 
uh, might be caused by a dysregulation in the endocannabinoid system. And if we can determine endocannabinoid deficiency or dysregulation early on in life, we may be able to give people supplemental therapies that may help with disease prevention. And if you look at certain cancers, for example, you find that they, they manifest in people's 20s, 30s, and 40s, but there are signs of dysregulation in cells earlier on that could be related to endocannabinoid functioning. So I think that there's a lot still to learn. If I was a young person who was interested in biomedical science, I would absolutely want to study the endocannabinoid system because I really think it holds the key to a lot of the things that we've been trying to address with some of these illnesses that just be, seem to be throwing everything at them and nothing really seems to work. Absolutely, absolutely. Pardon the short break for a word from our sponsors. Gramps Place. The podcast where Gramps and his guests talk about cannabis and cannabis law reform is brought to you by Something Has to Change, and now Working through advocacy to educate, agitate, and motivate millions in order to end the prohibition of plants. Visit www.facebook.com slash something has to change and now for more information. Because it really is pretty simple folks. Something has to change and now. Welcome back to Gramps Place. The podcast where Gramps and his guests talk about cannabis and cannabis law reform. I've done is sitting right here at my laptop you know I mean we came home the day of Will's service and his mother and I of course having been divorced for many many years that was one of the first times we sat down at a table and talked and and she said that she had tried to talk him into trying it too Mm. and she's as straight as an arrow always has been you know doesn't drink doesn't anything and uh, was also a paramedic is her trade and she said you know i tried to talk him into it so i had an hour and a half drive home from where the service was and the wheels were just turning so when i changed i sat down right here at my desk and and searched and the first thing i found was the study in 1947 with epileptics right here in the united states and you know the first thoughts were, my God, 1947, we blank, blankety, blankety new, you know. Uh, then the second thought was 1947, 2016, the difference in extracts from 1947 to 2016. And, and then the thoughts just went into anger, and that's where my whole advocacy front started. Mm. But... uh you know, the amount of research that was there beforehand, before 30 years ago when we discovered the endocannabinoid system, is just a mountain to try to to climb. And then you look at what's happened since we've discovered it. Just And, and I'm talking around the world, of course, not here, just in the United States. Right. Well, that's a really excellent point because, you know, we talk about this limit on cannabis research. Uh, It doesn't exist everywhere. It is not a global thing. There is unbelievable research happening in Israel, in Mexico, in Canada, 
um, you know, in the Netherlands, uh, in Germany, in Spain, uh, Italy, in Italy. Yep, absolutely. So, you know, the, it is progressing. And we as the United States are woefully behind, um, not just in research, but in policy. You know, Canada obviously is federally legal. Mexico is one step away from being federally legal. Um, you know, Panama just legalized medical cannabis as a country. Italy just gave people the right to grow four plants at home. So we're, um, we're probably one of the more draconian uh, developed nations at this point on this issue. So we have a lot of catching up to do. Most certainly, most certainly. So it, it, with that being said, what direction do you think that we need to go first? Getting the, the laws changed first, or can we push forward with any kind of re research anywhere? I mean, like out in California, I know there's some research going on in California with the legality there. Right. There is quite a bit of research happening in California. I don't think we necessarily need to have federal legalization before we have access to research. Um, I think that legalization is most important because people are going to jail. And as long as people are still going to jail, then people like your son are not going to want to access cannabis if it's illegal. And access is important. We know enough about the plant right now to know that no one should go to jail for it and that people should be able to try it for their medical use. Absolutely. We know that much and that that should be widespread. Every single person in the United States should have that right. And so I think that is where we need to start. And that's very basic. Um, I think that the research is starting to happen from state-funded programs. So there's a lot of tax revenue happening from legalization. That's how we're funding research out here in California. Uh, they're funding research in Colorado. So I do think that there's opportunities once states legalize to put that into research. Um, you know, state like Texas, the amount of money that they could make off of cannabis, they would be able to fund a ton of research at every university in Texas. They would be able to completely revolutionize the education system. You know, they would be able to give, put up um, shelters and opportunities for people who are houseless and need mental health services to get them. I mean, it's the so silly. The number of jobs, tens, hundreds of thousands of jobs. And the thing is, all over an activity that's already happening, but only a very select few are making money <laughs> off of it right now. It's funny so, you say that. You know. That's my number one argument with lawmakers today. You know, I, I went down, uh, you know, I started in 2016 making videos, posting them on YouTube, posting them on Facebook, of just me reading the research, you know. And then it went from that, to I started getting involved with, with the local normal group. And then I got involved with Texas normal. And then I went in 2019, actually, I went down to Austin and lobbied and testified and the whole mess down there. And I even went in September of uh, 2019 up to DC and lobbied in DC. So I uh, was gonna do all that again this past year, but COVID had a little something yeah. to say about that. So, yeah. but uh, I, luckily in Texas, they allowed us to do virtual testimony. So I sat right here and did my testimony. But that was my number one argument is, you know, you're arguing, because that's my representative's number one argument. Well, you know, we got to be careful because, you know, we can't let everybody have it and everybody will start doing it. And then, you know, and I said, 
sir, not to interrupt you, but anybody that wants to already is. You're not stopping anything by keeping it illegal. Right. And you're spending more money on the criminal side on prosecuting cases. It's an average of, uh, I read something now, it's probably gone up, of course, but this was probably two years old. An average of $10,000 per case for minor possession. People having less than a quarter of an ounce in their possession. Yeah. And it costs $10,000 to prosecute them. And that's it's, if they plea out. Right. You know, uh, and I said, what are you stopping? Nothing. Well, see, but I think, you know, the point that you're making is a really good one, which is how politicians make up their minds on this issue. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, that when you're talking about a very stigmatized activity, whether it's cannabis use or sex work or, you know, any number of activities that people just have personal feelings about, that's how they make their decisions. They make their decisions with their hearts, not with their heads. And unfortunately, what that means is that you could present them with all the evidence in the world. You can bring in thousands of pages of research and policy and put it in front of them. And they would say, yeah, but I don't know. It just feels like it's not a good idea. And so what I learned a long time ago doing policy work in California, long before it was even okay in California to do, to use cannabis, um, was that you have to get people's personal stories. And I think that's why you're such a compelling advocate. Because that same politician that really doesn't care the numbers you're putting in front of them or the arguments you're making for economics, telling them the story of your story and of how what was keeping your son from accessing this plant was the legality. And that as long as it's illegal, other people and their children and are gonna have are in the same situation. And I'll tell you, in all the years that I've been doing this, when I talk to politicians who change their mind on this issue, nine out of ten of them say it's because they heard a personal story that changed their mind. No one says, well, someone finally showed me the graph that had enough money on it that I decided cannabis was okay. No one ever says that. They always say, I ended up having to use it for something or a family member did, or I heard this story, or I read this article of this person. And that's really what does it. So I would, you know, just tell you to keep sharing it. Keep sharing your story. Um, you know, keep telling legislators that it's the it's the, it was the law that prevented access and that you don't want this to happen to anyone else and that it is happening to people all over Texas every day. Because the reality is, yes, you can get weed in Texas, um, but it's not the same as having a regulated medical system. It's not the same as being able to go and know what product you're getting and know that it's tested and being able to get it in all kinds of of variations from flour to tincture, like that is so important for people that are trying to use this for medical conditions. It's not the same as just saying, well, you just go buy it on the street. It's not the same. No, absolutely not. I mean, there's no comparison and the safety factor. There is no safety factor on the street. No. You know, there's none. Whether, Whether you know what the the, the tested THC and CBD content is or not, that's kind of irrelevant. Uh, what what did they use on it while they were growing it? Right. You know, that from the street, you know, so it's crazy. I'm curious what your feelings are. Do you ever think that we'll able be, be able to have home grow 
from from coast to coast in the United States, like you can grow vegetables. Oh, I hope so. I hope so, Chris. I I think we absolutely should. I mean, you know how I feel. You know, people have the right to grow their own medicinal plants for personal use, full stop. doesn't matter what that plant is or what you plan to use it for. If you are growing it and you are putting it in your own body of your own decision, that's your business. So yeah. I do think that everyone should be able to grow cannabis. I think people should be able to grow medicinal cacti and medicinal fungi and any other plant that they think will help them beneficially in, in their wellness. Uh, I do believe cannabis belongs out in the garden. I've got some beautiful cannabis plants out in my garden right now that are flowering and getting close to harvest. Um, I've been growing my own cannabis for over uh, 25 years. And I started in Chicago uh, where it was very much illegal um, in the mid nineties after I moved from Austin to Chicago. And I did it in my little apartment with my little light hung in the closet. And it was an amazing experience. And, you know, more than just the right to do it, right, which is an individual right, there is the experience of being able to do it. And if you can grow your own medicine, that relationship that you develop with that plant, you know, people who grow their own food say the same thing. You know, the peppers that I grow are better than any pepper I get in the store. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, there's a reason for that. It's fresher. But it's also because you grew it. I mean, there is something to that relationship that ends up with a better product. And I live in the Emerald Triangle of California, which is a world-renowned region for cannabis cultivation. The best cultivators in the whole world are here. I have access to their flower whenever I want. And I still say that the cannabis I grow myself is the best. <laughs> um, it's the, it's, I love it the most and I cherish it the most. So I do think that eventually we'll get to the point. I mean, we're, we're there with hemp in most places, right? So like you can grow hemp in your garden and let's face it, hemp is just cannabis without the THC. I mean, it's the same plant. It's, it's the same plant. So yes, I would say some ways, Chris, people already can grow cannabis in their home garden from coast to coast. We're just calling it hemp and we're restricting the amount of THC in it. But let's face it, it's the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, you've been involved in policy as well, as you say. Uh, where do you see the U.S. on a national level as far as the federal prohibition? Do you think it's five years, 10 years? What do you predict? Well, I'm going to put my money on 2025. Okay. That's always been when I thought it was going to happen. That's what we used to say. When I worked at Drug Policy Alliance, that's kind of the year we would throw around is when we think it would happen. So I would say we will have several more states pass laws at the state level um, before we see federal legalization, including some states doing medical that currently don't have it, um, perhaps like Idaho, Wyoming. So I think we will see some more state and maybe Texas will pass uh, adult use before, a, you know, federal legalization. I actually think that it makes the most sense for as many states as possible to pass their own state programs prior to federal legalization, because I think it will put the federal government in a position of not being able, able to engage in too much overreach. My concern is that if we only have a handful of states with robust programs when federal legalization comes, the feds will say, all right, forget those rules that you've been developing and crafting and that your whole industry has been based on for the past 15 years. Here's your new rules. And everyone in the country has to follow them. And that will just kill these state markets because the, the rules at state level right now are so unique to the individual state. I mean, you look at the way California does things compared to the way Oklahoma does things, and it's like day and night, just like everything else they do, right? Absolutely. 
So I think the federal government's job is to regulate interstate commerce. It's to regulate import-export and perhaps to set an age limit that's consistent across the states. But other than that, I say hands off. Let the states figure it out. Let them do what they need to do for their own good. And don't impose additional taxes and don't impose additional regulations. What can our listeners do to help states that are dragging their feet, in your opinion? Start local. Cannabis all starts local. Because people have such strong feelings about it, they need to be able to look you in the eye and they need to be able to trust you as a community member if they're going to change their mind on it or want to take a chance. So I always say start local. You know, I was on the Medical Cannabis Commission for the city of Berkeley and the Cannabis Regulatory Commission for the city of Oakland, and everything happened at the local level. Before we had state regulation in California for decades, we had cities that were regulating medical cannabis without the state's permission. So I think that it's really important that you get involved at your local level. Find out how your locality feels about cannabis, because the other thing is that especially in a state as big as Texas, when y'all do legalize, there's gonna be a lot left up to the individual cities and counties to decide whether or not they want it there. So just because your state legalizes doesn't mean you're gonna have dispensaries in the city you live. So it's really smart to start that conversation now. Find out how your elected officials feel about cannabis. If, If it were to be legal, would they allow stores? Would they ban them? How would they feel about home grow? And if they're against it, take the next election opportunity to vote them out and bring someone in who's positive on cannabis. That way, let's say Texas legalizes in two years, you've had two years to stack your city council, your board of supervisors, your local officials with people that are cannabis friendly so that when it is legal and they say, hey, hometown, do you wanna have cannabis? Your folks say, yeah. And you don't have to go through these battles that we're going through in California right now, where we have such limited uh, opportunity for industry because so many places have just decided to ban it because no one did work at the local level to make sure that people in office were actually going to support it. So I would say if you're in a place where cannabis is still illegal, find out how your city council and local officials feel about cannabis. And if they're not into it, get someone in that seat that is into it. And you have plenty of people to choose from now because cannabis support comes from all sides. So it doesn't matter if you live in a Republican place or a Democrat place, you can find a person that is a viable candidate who supports cannabis. So get them in there and then get them ready to support it when legalization happens. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that that's something that, you know, before I got involved in research on cannabis, after my son passed away, I uh, had a argument with my father when I was 10 years old about politics. And he told me I was a dumb little kid and I didn't know what the hell I was talking about. And that pissed me off and in, intrigued me at the same time. So from the age of 10 to almost the age of 50, I spent most of my spare time in some formal and mostly informal research on politics, government, economics, the whole ball of wax. And I have constantly, for decades now, preached to people, the number one problem in America today is the right-left argument. Because all that does is create inaction. And the reason we have it so much is because these people that we have elected 
keep getting elected over and over and over again. I don't ever get anywhere with it because too busy with the, the news media and they're portraying that argument. You know, that's all they, they push anymore is the rhetoric. You know, we don't hear anything really about policy much anymore. We hear about he said, he said, she said, in my opinion. Well, and, because they're trying to get viewers and they're trying sure. to get clicks. And it's so that, all, that focus has completely changed what the public wants to see and what they're willing to deliver. And I, I would say that, you know, this isn't just a cannabis thing. You know, this is uh, an issue thing. You know, I don't think, I, I would say that one of the biggest problems that we see today is that people aren't taking the time to really pay attention to how, how politicians feel about their issues. Like they're not investigating, they're not researching, they're not going to city council meetings, they're not paying attention to, you know, how the people that represent them act and think and, and, and really thinking about it, you know, not just like, oh, this person's popular or, you know, oh, they've got a big social media presence, so I'm going to vote for them, but really paying attention to who is being put in charge at all levels. And I think if people paid more attention to that, whether your issue is cannabis or animal rights or whatever it is that makes you passionate, um, I think we just need to pay more attention and not succumb to what you're talking about, which is just the sensationalism, like, ooh, look at this crazy picture and click here so that we can show we're valuable. That's kind of what the news has been reduced to, unfortunately. Yes, absolutely. We can do a whole show on that, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. Uh, don't need to get off on that tangent, I don't think. We're probably not going to solve the, the, the nation's no, problems. No, I don't think anyway. so. <laughs> uh well, I want to thank you again for, for coming on the show and uh, appreciate all the insightful points that you've made. Uh, where can my listeners find you? Uh, well, it's been my pleasure. This is I was really looking forward to this, and it did not disappoint. I knew this was going to be a great conversation, so thank you so much for inviting me. Um, if folks want to find me, they can find me in lots of places. Um, you can go to our website, which is mypersonalplants.com. If you want recipes and how-tos all around different plant medicines, really easy to follow a content. Um, if you want to know more about what I'm doing personally, uh, you can follow me on Twitter, which is just my name, Amanda Ryman. Uh, and then you can also follow me on Instagram. Uh, Personal Plants has an account, um, but also Amanda Mendo Oaklandish is my Instagram account, which is a combination of Mendo and Oakland. Although now that I'm moving to the Denver area, I don't know what's going to happen. I may have to just assume a whole new identity, but that's who I am for now. Um, and so that's where you can find me. Okay, great. Well, that's it for tonight's episode, folks. And we appreciate you coming to listen. And thanks again, Amanda, for, for being here. Oh, my pleasure. Anytime. Gramps Place, the podcast where Gramps and his guests talk about everything cannabis, cannabis law reform, and anything else that might need a little changing here in the good old USA. Working through advocacy to end the prohibition of plants. Brought to you by Something Has to Change and Now, and our media partners, the Texas Cannabis Collective, where you will find everything there is to know about Texas and Texas cannabis. Just go to www.txcannaco.com, the Texas Cannabis Collective. Be sure to subscribe where you get your podcast, or visit grampsplace.net and join our mailing list today. And as always, thank you for listening to Gramps Place. Oh, 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 oh